good morning. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you grab that and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25. 1 Corinthians uh, 14 verses 1 through 25. All right, so my wife is out of town this weekend and has been for a few days. So I've been a single parent to two um, terrorists since then. So I do need you to know if I see you talking during the sermon and I go, hey, get it. Just, it's an overreaction. Just let it, let it ride. Just let it go. Let it roll off. All right. So 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul picks up his discussion about spiritual gifts again. He's been talking about spiritual gifts. He randomly stops to talk about love as the most important aspect of the Christian life in 1 Corinthians 13. So 1 Corinthians 13 is a parenthesis, basically, right? It's a parenthesis that illumines how he's going to talk about spiritual gifts for the rest of the time. He's, uh, this, this passage this morning is largely about prophecy and tongues. Not largely, it's completely about prophecy and tongues And it's one of those unique passages where Paul's whole discussion is about prophecy in tongues, but he's really not talking about either. He's talking about something even greater. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. He's written the love chapter. He comes out of the love chapter and he says this, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, especially that you may prophesy. All right, so what is prophecy? Prophecy is a spiritual gift of, uh, it's not foretelling about future events, it's forth-telling. It's speaking powerfully the truths of God. It's speaking powerfully the truths of God. Could there be foretelling? Yes, we've seen God use human prophets to tell the future before. But for the most part, like when you say that, understand the book of Isaiah is hundreds of verses and like 15 are foretelling and the rest is forthtelling, all right? Not 15, but you get what I'm saying. So it's foretelling. It's powerfully speaking the truths of God Uh, directly to people. And Paul says, uh, he he puts these things into these brackets so we understand them. One, he says, pursue love, pursue love, and pursue the spiritual gifts. Except that's not exactly what he says. That's not exactly what he says. Uh, The word here for spiritual gifts, and remember, he's been talking about spiritual gifts the whole way, and he's been using the word charismata, the Greek word charismata. Uh, basically the gifts of grace. Uh, But here he doesn't use that word. He doesn't use charismata. Here the word is pneumaticos, pneumaticos. And it's closer to spiritual things than it is spiritual gifts. Now, because he speaks so much about prophecy in tongues, Uh, the Greek translators that are trying to put this in here are gonna go to spiritual gifts so we can make the connection. But I want you to think more broadly than just this because what he's going to be talking about as he talks about prophecy in tongues is greater than just the discussion of spiritual gifts. It's a spiritual mindset. 
what he's about to be talking about. It's a spiritual mindset. And he launches that discussion of a spiritual mindset by saying, pursue love and pursue the spiritual gifts. And we need as Christians to be about both of those things. If we're only about one or the other, we're only half doing what Paul is asking us to do. Remember, Paul is being inspired by the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit is the one directing Paul's pen. So when Paul says, I want you to pursue love and I also want you to pursue the spiritual things, that launches into what we're talking about. And so he immediately says, especially that you may prophesy. Now that's weird because we would say, well, wait a minute, how, are, how is there a distinction between spiritual gifts? Like that is, a, how is there a distinction between those things? Aren't all spiritual gifts equal? And that's where a big context into what we're going to be talking about this morning comes. Because Paul is going to be talking about a very specific context. So if you walk out of here going, prophecy is the greatest spiritual gift. No, that's not true. When you're talking about the context that Paul is talking about, it is the greatest spiritual gift in this Context. So I want to be very clear about that. Paul has a very specific context in mind, which will become clear as we go into the passage. So, but he wants people to understand these things. He wants them to pursue love. He wants them to desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. In verse two, he says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. He utters mysteries in the spirit. When it comes to the biblical doctrine of tongues, there are several different interpretations of it among people who believe spiritual gifts are still inactive. One of them is that the gift of tongues was only foreign languages. If you read Acts 2, it's very clear that when the Holy Spirit falls on the groups of believers in the upper room in Acts 2, they all begin speaking in foreign languages and a courtyard filled with people from other nations all hear their own language being spoken and they hear the glories of God. Of course, there's another side that says there is a spiritual language that manifests itself in tongues. Uh, That there is a mysterious language that people can utter when it comes to these things. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, Both of those things seem to be supported in scripture, right here. A language that is spoken not to men, but to God. So they're not speaking to other people. uh, And no one can understand him because he's uttering things in the spirit. Uh, So Paul is pushing forward this idea. And you're going to watch him go between those two things. He's going to talk about languages uh, in one passage. He's going to talk about no one can understand what I'm saying. I'm I'm uttering mysteries in the spirit in another part. So we push forward into that because I want you to see that his main point here is not what is tongues. His main point here is it's unintelligible. All right. So. Uh, very clear, he begins to say, uh, very much this is, a, this is a, gonna be Paul putting forward a, a picture of prophecy versus tongues in this very specific context. And he starts by saying, in this very specific context, tongues is not valuable because of its unintelligibility. Remember, context. Uh, this unintelligibility, no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Verse three is the polar opposite. On the other hand, the one who prophecies speaks to people for their upbuilding, 
encouragement, and consolation. So already we see in this context that Paul is talking about, he wants there to be a very much a picture of understanding, of fruitful understanding. It would be a way that we could talk about it. He wants people to grasp what he's saying here. And this is really the crux of what Paul's gonna say for the rest of the chapter. He's gonna say the same thing over and 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 over. And you're gonna go, we got it. And I'll go, yeah, but he's not done. And over and over and over, right? But he wants prophecy, the telling of God's truth powerfully to be a central place in this context because it should be for upbuilding for encouragement and consolation. Maybe you've heard the old Christian kind of word of uh, edification, building up, uh, building up people, encouraging them, giving them hope, uh, giving them consolation for their sorrows. Prophecy is the gift for that. Prophecy is the gift for that. Now, Paul is gonna talk about a fourth thing that prophecy does. Uh, at the end of the, ch- of the passage we'll be looking at this morning. But I want you to keep those three things in mind. So if you're a note taker, put prophecy because edification or upbuilding, encouragement, consolation, that's what these things are for. In verses four and five, he says this, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophecies builds up the church. And there's the context. This is the context that's gonna dominate this whole conversation because Paul is specifically speaking about what goes on in the church, right? We've already seen that in verse three where he says prophecy speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So the two people was a clue, but we really get the context here, the church. Paul is speaking about the public meeting. And in the context of the public meeting, prophecy is greater than tongues because other people can understand it and they can gain from it God's wisdom and power for them. I want to be clear here because some of the ways we understand Christianity, and most of the time when Paul talks about being about yourself, we go, well, that's bad. But here, when Paul says the one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, he, that's not a pejorative. He's not saying that's bad. He's saying it's bad in this context. It's in the wrong context. Now, later in the passage, what we're going to find is that the Corinthians and their public gathering have been engaging in everybody speaking a tongue at once. And Paul is going to come out resolutely against that practice, resolutely against that practice, and for several reasons. But he says, now, uh, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. Now, depending on which branch of evangelicalism you came from to find your way to fellowship church, You're either right at home with this verse or extremely nervous right now. You're going, I don't know about all that. We'll get there. But we do have to deal with the passage, right? I hope one of your favorite things about fellowship is we don't dodge the passage. 
We're going straight through it. I want all of you to speak in tongues. Why would Paul want every believer to speak in tongues? Because it builds up the believer in an intimate way. And that's going to be Paul's point. Now, we have to be very careful because earlier in Corinthians, Paul asked the question, does everybody speak in tongues? His answer is no, not everybody speak in tongues. He says the spirit gives gifts as he wills. So we cannot expect for everybody to, but Paul does desire people to. And Paul says again, desire these gifts. I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, I want you all to prophecy. The one who prophecies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So in the specific context of a church meeting, Paul says prophecy is greater because it builds people up unless the person who speaks in tongues can be interpreted because then the tongue becomes as the prophecy, understandable. But this is the only way that it's acceptable in the large group meeting because tongues, it seems, in this case, is more of a gift for privacy. And here's another thing that makes it an interesting contrast to Acts 2. Acts 2, everybody heard. Paul here is saying, no, this is, this is for you. This is for you alone. This is for you in a different context. So that the church may be built up. That's what he says. Now in verses 6 through 11, and we're not going to read those, he gives various metaphors. And he basically says this. If you speak in a tongue in the group, you might as well be talking to the wind. Because no one's going to understand what you're saying. It's just like you're talking to no one. He says, if there's a flute and a trumpet playing, it's just noise unless they play different notes. If a, if a bugle makes no sound, who's ready for battle? He's saying there's times and there's appropriate places for these things. And they need to be in their perfect, appropriate place for them to have their power. He picks it back up in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And here is where the plane really starts landing for us. All right? For the vast majority of my Christian life, in the various places I've been that have really pushed the spiritual gifts, it always devolves into this is about me. There are almost zero of the spiritual gifts that are about you. Tongues may be the only, uh, and this, this type of tongues may be the only exception. All the other ones are meant for others. You ever noticed? Prophecy, you gotta have somebody to talk to. Teaching, you gotta have somebody to teach. Hospitality, you gotta have someone to host. Mercy, you gotta have somebody to have mercy on. Healing, you gotta have somebody to heal. Others. Others, 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 others. The more we turn in on ourselves and our own spiritual experience and our own desires and our own comforts, the more we are out of step with any kind of New Testament understanding of the things of the Spirit. 
It should be abundantly clear that the Christian life is a life of service, we know that. It's a life of love, we know that. The experience of spirituality is no different. God honors himself in you to be glorified to others through you. That is the way of Christianity. He says, I want you, 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 he says, you want, you desire, you are eager. The word here in Greek is the word zealots. It's where we get the word zealots from. You are zealous, you are eager. You greatly desire manifestations of the spirit, proof of the spirit's power. He goes, you want that? Strive to excel in building up the church. You want these things? Then pursue the good of your body of believers and forget yourself for a minute. I mean, that is fundamental Christianity 101. This is not out of bounds. This shouldn't strike anybody as weird. But the Corinthians have become all about their own experience. And we're really about to buzz over American evangelicalism, so get ready. Strive to excel in building up the church. Strive for another. In verse 13 and 14, he says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Right? So Paul is saying here, uh, if you're gonna speak in a tongue, you, you, you better be more equally praying for an interpretation so that you can strive to build up the church. And he's speaking about his own experience and he says, he's later gonna say, I speak in tongues more than anyone. And he says, uh, uh, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. There's a disconnect. So what does Paul say? In verse 15, he says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Humanity exists in a continuum, right? And if we were gonna put the continuum up, we could put people who are all in their heads and people who are all in their hearts kind of against each other, right? The vast majority of people kind of exist in that middle third. And then you have the extremists, right? I am way oriented to my head. My wife is way oriented to her heart. We balance each other out poorly sometimes, <laughs> but we try. And what, Christ, what, what, what Paul is saying here is wherever you are on this continuum, you need to be pushing yourself to the other side as well. And this is where modern evangelicalism, the church today is very much like our society today and is polarizing and putting ourselves in the situations that are easiest for us. Worship seekers, I just wanna go to great worship things. I don't care what they say. I want the experience. I wanna go there and I wanna sing. And I, you know what, the song could be a little heretical. You know, it's to Satan, but that's okay. Like, I like the groove and it makes me feel good. I want to feel this way. No, our worship team goes through great lengths with every song we sing going, does it teach? 
Does it, does it, is there a weird word? Should we sing it? Should we not? How do we do this? Are we too strict? Are we not strict enough? They, they, they work on these things for the good of the whole. Why? Because it's not enough just to sing with your spirit. You've got to sing with your mind. You've got to sing with your mind. And likewise, oh fellow frozen chosen, <laughs> theology is great, philosophy is great, Greek is great, no it's not. <laughs> but if Christianity is all up here, you are not who God called you to be. I'll put it in your language. God made you holistic. You must pursue holistic worship or your worship teeters in inadequacy. For you heart people going, what? Don't worry about it, you'll get there. <laughs> we have to pursue both because in pursuing both, we become whole, the whole of what God called us to be. If we're not that, we stagger in immaturity. We stagger in immaturity. And now Paul goes to the fourth thing that prophecy does in the church that's important. In verse 16, he says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? So now Paul's going to, you know what? Worship services should be about you incorporating your spiritual gift to build up others, but there's also another other there, and these are non-believers who come among us. And how can they see that we're praising God if what we're saying is unintelligible? How could they join in? Now, I do need to show you quite possibly my favorite biblical point of all time now. It's replacing everything else in my life. My children are now a distant second. The word that Paul uses here for outsider, right? The word outsider in Greek is this word, which when you, somebody speaks Greek, when you Anglicanize this, is the word idiots. <laughs> it's idiotes, literally, and it means uneducated, but it's idiots. So <laughs> I can now say idiots biblically. <laughs> Mama, Pastor Greg said idiots. Yeah, but he was quoting the Bible, apparently. Trump card, right? You're saying, well, what will your kids say? My kids already call me an idiot, so that's fine. <laughs> Paul's larger point here is digging into the notion of we have a responsibility greater than our own experience. Let me buzz the plane on American evangelicalism again. Because church is not supposed to be a thousand individual experiences. It's supposed to be one shared experience. That's what the worship meeting is for. One shared experience. And now what's going to happen is some of you are going to come and say, well, you know, one shared experience is possible because deconstructionism tells us that we can't all have the same experience. And I will tell you that individualism has been educated so much into your soul that you're denying the Bible's teaching. You say, that's not possible. I say, God, trump card number two. 
The Holy Spirit can transcend all our inability to understand, to grant us, see if you've heard this biblical phrase, the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. We are meant to walk out of a worship building having had a shared experience, which is fundamentally cut off when we leave churches going, well, it didn't really speak to me. That's not my thing. That's not the way I like it. You are cutting yourself off from all spiritual experience. Because Paul says, do you want these spiritual manifestations? Strive for the building up of the others. Strive for the building up of others. In verse 17, he says, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. The outsider is not hearing. In verse 18 and 19, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul is setting aside part of his spiritual experience, part of the deep intimacy he has with God for the purpose of others. When we want to kill the root of selfishness in ourselves, we can't just go, oh, you know what, I should give some more money to charity. The root of selfishness goes way deeper in us than that. We should be pursuing the good of others, even how we go to church. I'm so thankful for Fellowship Church. Um, this may be us you know, tooting our own horns, but I do feel like as a congregation, we strive, really strive for others here. We're not perfect at that, not at all. Uh, we fail a lot. Rick fails all the time, especially. <laughs> He's out the month of July, so I'm safe. <laughs> so, video, good call. <laughs> He's in video. Rick doesn't know how to use a computer. Uh, <laughs> now I'm dead. But I will say that we pursue service here well, not perfectly, but we need to grow deeper, ever deeper, ever more and more deeper. I want to talk to millennials for a second. And I know this can be so cliche, dogpiling millennials. Every generation has to find its, its uh, presuppositions and cut them down with the gospel. Like when you hear me teach, a lot of time what you hear me saying is my generation, Gen X, we are famously uninvolved. We don't care. We're going to sit back, let everybody do their thing. We're not going to do anything. We're gonna sit back and watch how it shakes out. No. The gospel calls you to engagement, fellow Xers. The gospel calls you to put aside your cynicism and engage. Um, but millennials, more than almost any other generation, seek the individual experience. Uh, we see this in the rise of all kinds of artistic expressions and unique experiences. 
the famous line, millennials would rather have an experience than own a thing. That's not bad in and of itself, but it will fundamentally orient you away from spiritual depth. The spiritual experience is collective. The church is not a singularity. It's a unified plurality. 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 There. <laughs> that must be sought. And if you don't seek it, you've cut yourself off from half, more than half, of what God wants for you. We must pursue it. We must. Verse 22 and 20, he really sums up the Corinthians argument and for a final refutation. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Grow up. Be infants in evil, but let your thinking be mature. He quotes the Old Testament. In the law it is written, by people of strained tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. What's great about this quotation is you read 15 commentaries and everybody goes, universally, no one knows why he quoted this or what it means today. No, the Bible, okay. The way Paul and uh, the gospel authors quoted the New Testament is foreign to us. And sometimes there's quotations and you're reading it now and you go, that quotation makes no sense. It's because they quoted, they had a total different orientation how they used quotation. But his point is clear. What he's trying to say, verse 22 is a quotation from a letter they wrote him. So the Corinthian church writes him a letter. And in that he says, that they said, thus tongues is not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. But Paul refutes that. It says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders, idiots, or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Yes, they do. We watch it now. They do. It's exactly what he says. They want to say, no, tongues is a sign for unbelievers. He goes, no, truth is a sign to unbelievers. And he ends with the last thing that prophecy can do, which is one of the most painful things in Christianity. He says, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. And he is called to account by all. Notice the unity. All. All. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Prophecy is speaking the truths of God powerfully. So much so that the outsider and unbeliever, it's interesting that Paul splits those. And most commentators think an outsider is somebody who is spiritually curious but doesn't know yet, which is really what the word idiot meant. It meant somebody who doesn't know yet, sort of like ignorant means. Um, But an unbeliever is a person who fundamentally disagrees with all that. I don't believe any of that. 
But when the unbeliever outsider comes, he's convicted and the truth is ripped out of him. You have to stop with the childish notion that discipleship is all pleasure. And we call each, uh, we call ourselves, we call our church to be disciple makers. We have to stop with the notion of all spiritual things are pleasant. That's a child's view of life and of spirituality. True spirituality is Jesus sitting down with you, crying with you, holding you, and then going, you ready? I'm ready. Rip. Here's your heart. That No. No. Yep. There it is. Confession and repentance and making restitution will help heal you. But you need to know that I died to forgive this and we are one together. Now you'll either walk in that or you'll walk away from it. But the thing about it is, is Jesus doesn't move. He goes, you get, when you come back, I'm right here ready. But you don't get to skip the step. You don't get to go, oh, well, that was painful. You know what? I'll just fast forward my Christianity two years and come back and not have to deal with that. Jesus is going, I'm back over here. When you deal with it, when you confess it, when you, make, when you repent and make restitution, you truly believe the gospel has forgiven you, Jesus sits down with you and goes, you ready? And you go, we already dealt with that, rip. It was deeper than you thought. No. Never ends. Never stops. But Christianity is a religion of contradictions. You fundamentally have to know this. Right? Our God is the God who sends a dude to rescue Israel in Egypt by sending a dude who can't talk to be his mouthpiece. The king of Israel is not the powerful linebacker, quarterback, tallest dude in the country. He's the redheaded last son in the field that has to work with the goats and sheep. When God comes into the world, he doesn't rip open the sky and step down in glory. He will, but he comes as a helpless baby in a manger who has to run because the king of the land kills all the other baby boys in the town. The savior of the world is not a God who conquers the devil and holds up his corpse and goes, I did it, world. He dies on a cross for us. And Christianity is a deep sorrow that produces the greatest joy you've ever had. And if you've not experienced that, it's because you haven't walked deep into it. But just like all of that, Paul's teaching here is this. Do you want to deeply, deeply experience the Spirit's presence? Then start deeply worrying about other people and evangelize them and disciple them and help them grow and be about your church meeting. Come together as one. This is how you'll grow. Will you stand and pray with me?
as we close our service, if you need prayer, some of our elders and prayer team will be here with their spouses and would love to pray with you. Uh, if you don't know this gospel, if you don't know what we mean, we say being evangelized and discipled about trusting Jesus, about being forgiven, we would love, love, love to talk with you about it. If you need a prayer about anything, please come so we can pray with you. We would love to do that. Uh, so let's pray now as a congregation, as one, and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father and God, we thank you uh, for the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that your role is to point us to Jesus, to remind us of Jesus, to show us the manifest reality of all the things he's promised. Uh, Jesus, you told us it is for your benefit if I go away so this Holy Spirit could come. Why? so that we could intimately experience the unity of the believers and the growth. God, in everything, let us be a praise to your glory. Let us be a people who in Christ's name live out these things so that your name and your renown might spread. In everything, we pray for the glory of God through Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen.